For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts, And on this episode, years before DNA, a lab tech saved evidence later used to exonerate 13 men. Did her work habits help win their release or put them in prison in the first place? We'll review the podcast, Admissible Shreds of Evidence. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, host of These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband and the love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of The Final Curtain, a series of cozy mysteries, Laura Bricker. Hey, Laura. Hey, Rebecca. And finally, our captain of all things cynical, the author of the City Trilogy of Novels, host of the current season of Stranger Arrivals, a podcast from iHeartRadio and our very own Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. Sounds really busy, right? Everyone is mm-hmm. so busy. So, Kevin, obviously this is Monday's Fine Podcast. It is. What is coming up on Thursday's Fine Podcast? On Thursday, we're going to be talking about the three-part documentary series from Showtime. It's called Murder in Bighorn. All right. So, Laura, we just came off of a fine weekend mm-hmm. where we hosted, you hosted, I should say, I'm taking zero credit for this, a bunch of our listeners and Robbie Achaudry in your quaint AF town of Exeter. And I just want to say, Lara, I saw you in your velvet blazer. I saw you two days in a row, like basically the queen of your town. And also listeners like Robbie Achaudry, great job, Lara Bricker. You really like pulled off an incredible event. And I heard you got paid a tremendous amount of money for this, right? Yes, in this all-volunteer uh, board capacity that I uh, fill as a member of the LitFest Board of Directors, um, it is a labor of love. Mm. But it was so rewarding to see the enthusiasm for Rabia coming to Exeter. Um, we had like some lady that was waiting out there like two hours before in front of the historic Exeter Town Hall, where, by the way, both Abe Lincoln and now Rabia Chaudhry have both delivered talks. This is great. We're going to talk about more of this in the CWO after show on Patreon. Mm-hmm. So let's not yeah. let's not give it all away. I won't give it all away, but it was it was a lot of fun. It was great to see everybody that came from out of town, all of our crime writers listeners. Agreed. And it was great to have dinner with you guys. Yeah, agreed. Okay. Are we gonna talk about the fact that like you told me I had to go for four hours earlier and then I ended up drinking for four hours? Yes. We'll get into <laughs> why that happened. Yes. <laughs> I'm too old for that shit, Kevin. Too old for yeah. that shit. Me too, Rebecca. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so should we just get into the podcast we're talking about? Because it's an intense one. Let's do it. All right. Let's just do it. Let's drop that first clip right now. I think I asked him, uh, are you sitting down? Because I got some news for you. You won't believe this. She violated the rules and she scotch taped the evidence from the rape kit in her notebook. Holy cow, we still got some of this evidence. Wrongful conviction lawyers looking for pre-DNA era evidence to test found a trove of samples where they shouldn't have been, taped to a lab technician's paperwork. That material would exonerate 13 men in Virginia. Advocates praised forensic scientist Mary Jane Burton for keeping the samples and for seeing the arrival of DNA testing. Mary Jane Burton, sort of the angel of the Virginia innocence movement. She's sort of viewed as the patron saint of justice and innocence. She's a saint. But few were asking why Burton broke chain of custody rules or why so many of her cases resulted in wrongful convictions. Whistleblower said Burton would skip scientific steps and record her blood test results in pencil so she could change her findings to benefit the police. This is really Pandora's box. All you're doing is you're then opening up a Pandora's box. It's Pandora's box, you know, it's scary. This is probably opening Pandora's box. Now we're just going to open Pandora's box and see what flies out. Virginia Public Radio and Story Mechanics present Admissible Shreds of Evidence, 
Host Tessa Kramer examines Burton's work to answer whether those smuggled samples revealed more than just the wrong guy did it. Were the scientists' unconventional methods responsible for getting innocent men out of prison or for putting them there in the first place? Spoiler alert, we're going to be talking about plot points from admissible shreds of evidence. So if you want to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs-up or thumbs-down reviews. So, Kevin. Yeah. Swabs and nail clippings. <laughs> scotch tape to papers in a folder. Grody. Why right? is that grody? It just all, yeah. Here's a semen sample. I'm going to get a little piece of masking tape, put it on the bottom of this piece of paper, and then put it one. It's like, don't you just feel gross if someone, like, leaves a coffee mug ring on a little piece of paper and then sticks it? You know, it just feels like it's that but it's bodily fluid that's been left in a uh, manila folder for four decades. Yeah. I think, Laura, there was an opening montage where people who talked to Tessa Kramer and her co-reporter just talked about the, quote, Pandora's box, that if they opened this box, they would find all of this stuff. And that sort of told, gave us a hint of where we were going to go in this podcast. And you pointed out one of those cases in your first note to me. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I think this case of Marvin Anderson, I think is really interesting because, you know, I think it shows the racial bias. This really influenced the direction of the investigation. And also, I think this particular case, for me, sets me up to see how, you know, initially you feel like Mary Jane is a hero to the wrongfully accused, the wrongfully convicted. And that really makes what's to come even more surprising. So this is a case where there is a woman who is raped. She stops to check on what looks like a bicyclist and she's like coming home for dinner. And this guy like drags her off and rapes her in a way that our host says, I'm not even going to tell you about it because it's just really graphic and I, I don't need to go down that road. And Marvin is at this time totally across town. He's like washing um, his car and the reason that he initially comes to attention is it's like he's dating a white girl. He has a white girlfriend. And, you know, somebody in this case is, well, I think that the person who did this was dating somebody that was white. And, and in town at this time, it's in the early 80s. That's something that everybody knows. And so that sends him up the, you know, list of suspects. and. Hearing how that, like, for me, that sort of, you know, brings out that sort of injustice part of my personality where I'm like, this is wrong. This shouldn't have happened. And this case is bullshit. And then when you hear that he is exonerated based on this DNA evidence, you're like, well, it can't be all bad, this Mary Jane woman. But you know wasn't, that Wasn't this the case of State versus MacGuffin? What do you mean? Well, this is the old first case, right? Like, this is like the MacGuffin. It, like, just gets yeah. all the action going. Oh, yes. yeah. Yeah. It almost, like, it almost is, is, is uh, you know, not even relevant to the whole, the bigger story. No, but right? that being said to me, it is. But it, it, it brings up your injustice hackles sure, because you're sure like, yeah, this guy was wrongfully convicted. This is bullshit. And now we're going to attack this like woman who did the thing, keeping the creepy clippings and evidence um, that actually helped exonerate him. So you're kind of set up to think like, well, wait a minute. What's the bait and switch here? Why am I not going to be happy with what she's doing? Do you exactly. Know what I mean? We never heard about a single white victim who was wrongfully convicted in this entire story. And mm -hmm. I will say, Toby, like one thing that I feel like this podcast, I mean, there is one episode that sort of lurks, looks at like uh, the statistics of wrongful convictions by race or whatever. I do feel like there's a slight under-examination, especially with Mary Jane Burton herself, of racial bias. I mean, there there is, by the way, she's dead. So we can't necessarily know a ton about her. But also, there is a sort of delay in the podcast, and I think it has to do with maybe how many episodes they were required to produce. There is a delay in how long it takes in this podcast for us to hear about whether or not she is legitimately doing things that wrongfully convict people versus mm -hmm. just making mistakes in the process. But she is clearly fucking wrongfully convicting people, right, Toby? Yeah, I thought, I, I mean, maybe I'm getting the sequencing wrong. I thought, like, maybe in the second episode when they're talking to 
Gina for the first time that she says that she mentioned Mary Jane does something that she doesn't under, doesn't quite get. And Mary Jane's response is, well, you know, if they weren't guilty, they wouldn't be sending us this stuff. Right. right? So she's she definitely has this sort of pro police, pro prosecution bias. And it's hard to know, does she sincerely believe that? And therefore, she starts with that pre- preconception, or does she more sort of see it as her job to to back them up? And I think that that's one of the questions that kind of comes up through it. But yeah, I mean, I, I the race issue is is definitely there, no question about it. I can't remember what, exactly what the stat was, but it was like black men are 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 much 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 more likely than white men to be falsely convicted of crimes. And I think, you know, we've listened to a whole bunch, you know, starting with uh, In the Dark season two, where you can kind of see how that how that happens and how institutions are set up that way. So this, you know, in some ways, this seems like just sort of another piece of this sort of larger system that tends to work against black people, especially black men. I thought it was interesting, Toby, how in an early episode, I actually liked this where, um, you know, one of the reporters in the episode, we hear the tape of her saying that she doesn't find Gina credible. And that is right. actually an echo of what Gina experienced in her own workplace. I was, as a listener, very fucking pissed when I heard that because I found Gina credible, like from the moment I heard her, because in my own professional life, a minor whistleblower in my own way, like that's happened to me where I've had my own justice hackles and I've been like, dude, this person is like doing this thing to other people. There's nothing more crazy making than when people don't believe you. And you have her, you have your sister, you have other people. And to have this reporter say like, I don't know, I don't find her credible. But then immediately we find all this evidence of her credibility. I actually found it really good that they included that tape because they didn't find her credible, but then they also knew they had tape of her being credible later and that would be included in a later episode and they reflect on that later right right well you know they do play later in the podcast something they recorded earlier where they called her batshit um so you know this is a thing that kind of you know i thought about quite a bit especially in sort of the first five episodes maybe is it's is she a whistleblower who's seen this stuff and and is, is blowing the whistle. Is she a malcontent that's being given a microphone and can kind of talk about it? And, and I think what it like that dynamic at that lab is something I've, I've, I've seen in other venues where I've been. And I don't know if this is exactly the dynamic, but I've seen this dynamic where younger people come in who've been trained and have, have all the latest sort of ideas and techniques and all this stuff. And then they run into people with vastly more experience, but who aren't quite as up to date with all the latest in the thinking and trends and stuff. And there's this sort of clash between experience and, and being sort of uh, as current as you can possibly be. And that often leads to, and there's also a power imbalance, right? Cause you've got senior people and junior people, so anyway, I, I, I for a while I th- I was thinking about like what like how do you actually take this? And I knew that you know we're supposed to be siding with with Gina, but you just never know if that's because that's who the reporters kind of felt sympathy for or whatever. I think in the the entirety of it, like you you obviously come to the conclusion that she's correct. Um, and the more and more you hear, it's just what what Mary Jane was doing seems. I don't know if it's unhinged, but it's just sort of unprofessional and like doesn't seem up to snuff. Kevin, it was interesting to me that obviously Tessa started out making a different podcast than the one she made. And then there was a pivot. Yeah. And like Toby alludes to it in episode 10 with, uh, you know, with the reporting team there that, you know, you know, what if Gene is actually right? But they certainly came into this sort of like, here's this great story about how all these Wrongful convictions were discovered, but also it seems like they were the only ones that sort of asked the next logical question, which was not, you know, which was kind of pierced this whole idea that, oh, she was saving all these samples because she could foresee that someday there'd be DNA, right? Which kind of like just smells like bullshit when you think about it, but also like, okay, well, why, why, if they keep turning up all these wrong, wrongful convictions, 
because of the DNA. It's like, but she was also using this to test why were her tests not excluding these people that we end up finding later actually did it or didn't do it. Excuse me. So the idea, you know, we're going to turn this on and say, like, maybe this story, the official story is wrong. Right. That just sort of like kind of creeps and they didn't go into it with that thesis. So as far as like f- going where the evidence leads you, you know, and following that fact pattern, that I think was was great because sometimes you go into these things and you've pitched this podcast to be about X and then to find out, whoa, whoa, it's it's like there's a better not just that there's a better story here. But that the whole thing is wrong, the whole, you know, thesis is wrong, the official story is wrong, and now we're going to go back on that, you know, that's incredible. So, Laura, here's the thing that I kept thinking about. Mm -hmm. Unless you are one of these crazy, like, 1940s, 1950s people who are doing cryogenics, and you literally say... I am cutting off my head and putting it in a tank because in the future, I believe that somebody will be able to revive my brain and make put me in a new body and bring me back to life. I don't believe that you can take a thing that somebody did in the past and say it's because they believed that in the future something would happen unless they literally said that, right? He seemed to think that I had totally typed it wrong. And I said, no, I didn't. I typed what you said. I mean, that was something that was very important, certain blood types and certain secretions. And I mean, you just don't get those wrong. But we do have Shirley, the secretary. Oh, she's my fave. Saying that even she, who didn't understand science, knew that Mary Jane was sus as hell, right? Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, Shirley was great because she's, you know, she's part of this carpool with two other people from the lab. And, you know, she's the secretary and she's riding in the car to and from work with Gina and um, Deanna. And, uh, you know, Gina and Deanna start sharing information with her about what's happening in the lab. But Shirley sets it up. So she talks about Gina first and how she's a little spitfire and you just... When she walks in the room, you know she's in the room. You know, everybody liked her and how much she loved forensics. But then, you know, she gets into Gina sharing that the tests weren't being done properly. And Shirley's like, like, this isn't my thing. But even Shirley realizes, like, you've got to have a control when you're doing a scientific test. I remember and that, that from was, junior high. Yeah, I mean, I even remember that. And also, you know, when you find, um, and then when Shirley herself is typing up reports and Mary Jane is making her type the reports over saying they're inaccurate. And she's like, no, they're not. This is what was in your notes. To me, that was like, I loved, first of all, I loved Shirley's voice as somebody in the story because she was really interesting. And she, just the way that she talked about people and described them really brought them to life. But second of all, I just loved these three women riding in the car, knowing something was wrong and coming up with a plan to do something about it. And then that leads to the photocopying of Mary Jane's notes to look at discrepancies in her reports. And that leads to my favorite thing, Pandora's box. Yes. <laughs> Pandora's, funny, Pandora's box. box was literally a box. Yes. You a know, banged up cardboard box. Who the hell does not like the idea that like you could go and, you know, find some back room, like where they keep the, you know, the uh, lost ark. Yeah. And, you know, they're like all of a sudden it's all there and you open it up and it's all fascinating. It's just like getting a subscription to Patreon. Oh, it's just like that. Oh, it's ding, exactly ding, 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 like what that. What an incredible <laughs> transition, Kevin, to our business section. Yeah. I got some exciting news about Patreon. What's that? Well, Wait, com- we're in the business section, we, though, right? Obviously, that's what that music in the background Just is. Just checking. You can check your ears. You need a Q-tip. Just checking. Uh, we have some exciting news about Patreon. What's that? Next month, we're going to be rolling out a new Patreon level. For reals? For reals. And this is Look what... At Toby's face. To- you, we should take our phone out and take a picture of Toby's pic- face right the now. The new Patreon level is a picture of Toby's face. Toby's face. <laughs> That's the new symbol of our new. That's the, like the archetype. That's like the, the avatar. He made the Eddie Murphy as buckwheat face. I'm just like, ooh. Yeah. You're, you're killing me with this suspense. Okay, here's the, here it is. The new level, you will be able to get all episodes of Crime Writers On ad-free. Shut that front door. And business section free. 
What? Uh, that is what I would pay for. That's what you pay for. If you don't want to listen to this fucking nonsense. Who's editing that shit? Not me. You are. Don't worry about it. <laughs> are you editing that? It's not going to be a fancy. Just club. It's gone. We're just going to chop the whole You're thing You're doing right that. They're not me. Just checking. Can we? Maybe we should talk about this offline. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're kind of ruining the, the surprise, the magic of oh, it. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay, incredible. Wow. Really so this at ninety dollars a month. Yeah. Listen to this shit. <laughs> <laughs> so that means you'll be able to get all the stuff. That, that's like between two crime writers on podcasts, the after show deep dive, uh, Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker podcast, the Meredith podcast. That's like 15 podcasts. No more sales Amos. pitch for you to do this. No more sales pitch for me. <laughs> so I'll let people know. So, But right now, you, if you're a, a part of our Patreon group at patreon.com slash partners in crime media, you can listen to the after show. On the latest after show, we're going to go into more detail about our experiences at Exeter Lit Fest. Ooh. It's not like you know, New York Book Week or something like that. It's but it was a wonderful. Lit. I, I heard some people got lit at the Lit Fest that are in this discussion. Yes. We'll find out a little more about that getting lit. Also, coming up soon, we have the, uh, the latest Deep Dive Book Club podcast. Toby, tell us about the book that you were doing and what your guests talk about. Uh, so, we were doing a book called uh, The Evidence of Things Not Seen, which is by James Baldwin, which is sort of his, his take on the Atlanta child murders. And we had uh, Ronald Young Jr. and Marsha Chatlin on mm-hmm. uh, to discuss it. And it's hard to summarize <laughs> exactly the discussion because the book is really quite something. I mean, it's really, you know, it, it's not so much about the facts of the Atlanta murders, although he does talk about Wayne Williams and stuff. It's more about sort of the historical and social context in which those murders took place mm-hmm. in which... Uh, sort of created the situation which they could. So that's kind of what the discussion was about, was about James Baldwin's take on uh, essentially race in America. And it's a very interesting, nuanced thing. And I got to tell you, the two guests really kind of helped me kind of think through the stuff that he had written Mm -hmm. in a way that I absolutely would not have been able to do if it was just me... uh, Sitting reading it in bed. So that's the beauty of the the book club, Toby. I'll tell you, is that Toby, you know, all these great ideas yeah. and even you as the host sometimes get to see things in a different way. I got a note from a listener who said this was by far the best deep dive they had ever sat in on because you were just like I'm taking a back seat and letting so Marcia Chatlin take over the deep dive. It was the best because there was so little of Toby. No, in it. because yeah, exactly. because Toby exactly. was like no, it wasn't. It wasn't because Toby gave up. It was because like the people who were the subject matter experts like became the subject matter experts in the book. Yeah, no, yeah. Mar- Marcia and Ron had a great chemistry. Um, so I, you know, stayed out of the way and uh, when needed, kind of prompted things along, and it was it was awesome. Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I got a lot out of it. So. I think it was probably the same person, but got in touch with me and said that that it was her favorite of the deep dive. So I hope people will listen. And if you haven't read the book, it may make you interested in reading the book because it would have made me. So if you want to know more information about any of those topics or, or learn a little more about the new Patreon level, make sure that you're following us. On our uh, Crime Writers On official newsletter, it comes out on Thursdays. Just go to crimewriterson.com, give us your email address, and you'll get all the great stuff, including Crime Writers On behind the scenes, photos of Cat of the Week, the Yay. Tweet of the Week, Yay. Crime Writers On merch, Yay. and all sorts of special new announcements. And Rebecca, thus ends the very valuable but easily excised <laughs> business section. If you join our new Patreon level, do we have a name for that yet? Why give it all away at once, the Rebecca? The Crime Writers on Rebellion? The no. Crime Writers on Royals? We gotta give it a name. You know, we're gonna talk about this on Thursday's show, too. Okay. So we don't have to, like, spend the you whole fucking business whole episode. Load, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Thank you, Laura. And thus ends the business section. So, Toby, while you were listening to this podcast, apparently you consulted with an expert... Sure. So as I was saying uh, before the business section, like I was sort of trying to wrap my head around, you know, what exactly was going on uh, with Gina and was, you know, were her criticisms legit and all this stuff. So I got in touch with uh, a Crime Writers On listener uh, named Karen Oyerly, 
and she is the state CODIS administrator for the Oklahoma Bureau of Investigation. Wow. And what CODIS is, is the Combined DNA Index System. So she's a forensic scientist who works for basically the state, the state Bureau of Investigation in Oklahoma. So she knows her stuff. She's been on the deep dive before to kind of explain some DNA stuff. So I texted her. And she had, uh, like, I didn't, she hadn't listened to the whole thing. So I had her listen to one of the episodes. I can't remember which one. And she kind of came, we went back and forth a little bit. And she had some interesting thoughts about this stuff. So one of the things is the whole bit about writing in pencil. She's like, that was completely cringy. And she said, no pencil, no whiteout. That what you do is you write in pen. And if you want to change something, you put a single line through it and you initial it. That was the one that seemed that's pretty egregious. You know, I'm not a lab director. I've never been a lab director. All I can say is that that would be grounds for, at very least, retraining, at most firing. But then she also said, you know, back in the 80s, that there was a lot less regulation on this stuff and that she had actually run into people using pencil back then and not sort of nefariously, uh, even though it may not have been best practice that it wasn't kind of unheard of. And then, so another thing she mentioned, it was kind of funny is she said, Oh yeah. You know, putting little samples of evidence in those folders is like, that's something that, that gets done. And then she got back to me later after listening to a little bit more of it. She's like, I just want to be <laughs> let you know that we put them in little coin bags to protect them. We don't just tape them with scotch tape <laughs> like right on the, the thing yeah. to paper. And then she said, like, not doing control tests and not waiting for the gels to cool is just like, again, it's just it's just shoddy practice. And what she wanted to do, she said, if she was investigating this thing, what she would have wanted to do first is to see what, um, you know, policies they had in place at the time to see if there were policies that were set that she wasn't following or whether it was just, there was a lack of policies and people were just kind of uh, doing what they wanted to. So anyway, I kind of came out of it thinking that, yeah, she's basically, agrees with the reporters on this about what what's going on although she's given a little more wiggle room to say until like the scandals of like that late 80s that there wasn't quite the same regulation you can't hold to quite the same standard Laura something that was interesting to me was that Mary Jane Burton was lauded for working nights and weekends as if she was a tireless employee but then it turns out like especially later in her career, maybe after she was under scrutiny, she was perhaps working nights and weekends and she could do whatever the hell she wanted to do and not have to follow the procedures of the lab. Do you think there was like something behind that? Well, I I think it's interesting because I think it shows how perception, you know, can change based on who's making the observation and, you know, what their tie to this person is. So, you know, if you are her fan, you're like, wow, she's fantastic. She's working nights and weekends. But then when you're hearing from these other people like Gina and Deanna and Shirley and the other people that know what's going on in the lab, you know, actually, no, this is how she's doing things when they start sort of calling her out for procedures that she's not following, you know, corners that she's, you know, things that are standard operating procedures in a lab that she's not doing, like having the, you know, control sample. And it was um, interesting also to hear how at the same time, she wasn't even really secretive with some of her trainees about why she was like storing this evidence. And, you know, she's saying like, always save a piece of what you test. And like, it's like this great thing that she's doing and instructing these people, some of them that are training under her to do the same thing. And, you know, and it seems like, oh, isn't this somebody that's just dotting their I's and crossing their T's and doing everything that they're supposed to be doing and just really going that extra step for these investigations? And, you know, and again, it depends on who's making the observation. Um, But I think that carries over if you look at kind of the parallels between that and like some of these cases. Again, it's like it's what light you're looking at it in. And I think in this case, it was really interesting to sort of peel back the layers of what was really going on in her lab And, you know, going back to that first case we hear about, the MacGuffin that Kevin was talking about, that setting us up for 
the complete 180 from what we think Mary Jane is about and what she really is about. And it was really sad to hear her about, you know, in her retirement. They're like, basically, she just became an alcoholic because when she got out of the lab, there was nothing else for her to do. Well, who, who's, who's to say that that's when that issue started? Um, yeah, it could have been on nights and weekends. Could have it could have been it could have been nine to five as well, which is all that's but I, I think primarily, you know, the the issue here, why she was doing that, I think has to do with vanity. Yes. Right. She wanted to be not only somebody who pleases uh, the police and the prosecutor. And certainly, you know, we hear that during that time. That was definitely, I mean, still today, I think it's probably the perception, but, you know, feel that like, no, it's not about science. It's about us being part of the crime lab and we're part of that team. And we got to make it work. Uh, we'll, we'll put this round peg in the square hole. But it was also about her ability to go on the stand and say, here's where I cut out the pant leg and all this other stuff. These are blue jeans. And I identified spermatozoa heads in extracts of the stain from the crotch of the blue jeans. You can see the hole here. The crotch was stained. And I cut out a little portion and extracted it with water and put it on a slide. It's so amazing that this is how she got hoisted by her own petard, which is to keep these samples, which are ends up being, as she doesn't realize it, I'm sure, but it's evidence of her own wrongdoing. Yes. Because you're able to, wait, you know, if she could foresee DNA coming, she'd fucking burn all this stuff. Yes. Although I would think that sort of in general... What happens a lot is they don't think they're doing something wrong, right? They don't think they're being, they don't think they're setting up innocent people. They think they've got the guy and they just need to tie it up in a bow. But, you know, if, if it were not for DNA, right, yes. we could not prove that all that other stuff was, was faulty, you know? Yes. So it isn't like, oh, I can't wait for DNA to come. So this will be better. Like, you know, why would you keep that stuff if you, unless for uh, for only two reasons. One, you thought it was bad and you thought somebody else later would be able to do something better with the information. Yes. Or you just were keeping it because you didn't think it was, you know, it was just sentimental to you. So I'm going to throw out there something that like, I don't know how you guys are going to feel about this or how our listeners are going to feel about this. There's something in this podcast that I don't know if it's deliberate or if it's ironic or if it is a, an example of actually what is wrong with Mary Jane Burton's work that is like inherent to how women sometimes approach their work, okay? Because I never hear it in a podcast that men make about, especially like in a, an investigative podcast that men make. And it's something that you actually brought up in a podcast that we critiqued last week. The uh, lovely, unbearable, blah, the blah, no blah. good, terribly bad. Yes. Yeah, or whatever it was. There, Alexander and the Rotten every Horrible, no good Every single exactly. scene. Okay, so mm -hmm. every single scene in this podcast where our reporter starts interviewing somebody starts with an adorable thing. Producer tape, yes. Where it's like, oh, you're wearing a t-shirt from the office. Oh, should we have shrimp scampi? Oh, should we? Every single scene, right? Showing your personality the show and tell every single scene starts with a show and tell right yep it's almost like i need to show you my work in order for you to believe me that i did my work that's kind of a theme here right oh you my should be showing us the work i right? could not stop thinking about this when i was listening to this podcast i'm like we're listening to a podcast about a woman who felt like she had to show and tell her work in a courtroom by saying, look at the snippets of the jeans. Look at the sample I took of this. Look at the clippings. And so you will believe me. And I'm listening to a podcast where a woman reporter and women producers are saying, listen to me driving up to this house and calling. Am I saying, am I almost here? Listen to me setting up behind my bed and listening to a but setting that's, up. That's very different, though. Yeah. But I am telling you, Kevin, I was so unbelievably like aware in this podcast, unlike in any other podcast I've listened to. I don't hear this in podcasts that that men produce. I don't. I hear this as singularly like women set the scene setting like, hey, let's get comfortable for a second. Men do it too, like a little bit. 
But I feel like that, let me show you that I'm here. Let me make you comfortable. And by the way, it's a thing that I also do at work. Like you've seen me do it when I sit down and interview people. I'm like, oh, hey, look, let me just open my soda a little and talk to you. Like we feel like we need to do that. I also wonder if Mary Jane Burton was also just like, I have to show you my work so you'll believe me. So like, I know that she was showing and telling to show off for the jury or whatever. But I also do feel like there's a component here that as a woman, she felt like she had to do that. So people believed her. I do feel like, by the way, she was a shitty fucking scientist and probably kind of racist and on the side of the police. I believe all of that. But also listening <laughs> to the reporter in this podcast having to show us her work the way that, like, I always hear women in podcasts do that. I was like, oh, my fucking God, women do this all the time. And like, we need to stop fucking doing that. Because it actually is, it's actually not interesting anymore. And it actually takes away from the journalism. In the same way it took away from the science. That's honestly how I feel. By the I, way, I don't know, you did... criticized the podcast no, I mean... we reviewed last week for that exact reason. Yes or no? Yes, for that reason. Although I think it works here. I mean, if you... I don't. I'm not going to be the one to say that... What women feel like they need to do or don't need to do in order to be taken seriously or wh wh whatever. I mean, that is that's not my experience. I'm going to have to let other people speak to that. I'll just say that it didn't feel to me like Tessa and her crew were doing this to get people to believe that they're in their competence like Mary Jane was doing. I felt like this was part of what they feel is like the style of the podcast and for what they did, because there was a lot of them talking to each other. I found it valuable. Yeah. Every single scene, though, in this podcast started with a little bit of okay. every single scene. It's a legit criticism, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But that's a production thing, right? Correct. It's not like but it yeah. happened with it's not like men don't scene. sit down and be like, here's question number one and here's question number two. It's just like you don't you don't cut it into. I understand that. But like, I, I just I just feel like it's a um, the show and tell parallels. It's very astute. I, yes. I okay. found I just found myself feeling that like as a I found myself feeling it hard. And I found myself thinking if for another reason, like, why would Mary Jane do that aside from being a showboat? I don't think a woman in the 1970s would swagger into the courtroom the same way a man in the 1970s would swagger into a courtroom. Maybe a woman in the 1970s would swagger into a courtroom thinking I have to show more than a man might do. That being said, I also think Mary Jane was a shitty fucking scientist, if you know what I'm saying. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree with the 70s thing. I don't I don't 100% follow the the podcast thing, but I don't need to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Toby, we have to talk about one more thing before we wrap this up. Uh, and I, I would like to get all your takes on this. We heard about a case in this podcast, and it was a brutal case of a, a night on which multiple rapes and attempted rapes and assaults occurred where there ended up being a penis lineup that was actually admissible into evidence in a court. I actually loved this, um, you know, reporting because they actually got the cop. They got the victims and they actually, you know, did the whole case all the way through. And we actually had a victim who actually did not believe in the exoneration. So it was reported out really beautifully in terms of the ripple effects of an exoneration. But the fact that there was a penis lineup in the case really stuck out to me. They both described it independently of each other as the shape like a fireman's helmet. And I said, well, this is helpful. Once we were able to identify Whitfield, we took a picture of his penis. And in during a course of, you know, when you're working a lot of these cases, I was able to obtain photos of other penises along the way. We actually um, conducted the first ever penis lineup. It's a great story. I don't think it's probably real great police procedure. No. Um, I was first flummoxed by the, his penis looks like a fireman's helmet, uh, in which case... Maybe a penis lineup would be helpful. Where do they come up with the five other penises for the lineup? I, I, Who volunteered yeah, for that just, job? And then the it's, police. Hey, everybody, go out back and yeah. take a picture. And it was cold you know, in the in police these department. Situations like we've already heard that they can't. Well, I mean, it's not really the reporters' problem. I mean, you this thing drops in your lap. Of course, you're going to report what it. I mean, it drops in your but, lap. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's almost nothing I can say about this without it being a double entendre. No, it can't. but um. 
you know, I, it's just, you hear earlier, I think, or maybe it's later, but you do hear about how, you know, identity, witness IDs are, are really bad. Uh, you, you can't really depend on them. Um, so the idea that if you can't rely on a face ID or a body ID, that somehow a penis ID, uh, you're going to put a guy away for <laughs> life or whatever based on a penis lineup. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's a, it's a great story though. It's a hundred percent. I mean, maybe that's innovative policing. I don't, it's, well, it's bizarre. I mean, I've, I've heard of sexual assault cases you know, where somebody might have a birthmark on their penis or something. And the Michael Jackson case, it was something like that. Yeah. 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 And, and they, and, and I've, uh, you know, and they'll have to go in and and take a picture to like, cause the person will remember the victim. Oh, well his penis had this funny mark on it or something. And so they go in and fire helmet is a very specific description. And I think the more like all penises could look like a fire helmet. Couldn't they? Yes. mm. That being said, (laughs) I think the more disturbing part of that was the two of the friends got to talk together before talking to the cops. That was the point. That was a crazy case where three people who knew each other were raped in different areas or raped. Or one of them was a break in and two of them were sexual. Right. I mean, that's not random, right? It's not random and it's very unlikely that a stranger. Exactly. That's something. Yeah. And I'm like, if you're looking at a stranger, you're probably looking right. at the wrong person. Right. And the guy they got, wasn't he a, a straight? He like tan. I forget. Yeah. He didn't do it. That's all. We That's did. yeah. All he right. didn't do it. All right. Let's do what we do. Let's our listeners know. Should they check out admissible shreds of evidence? Laura Bricker, what do you think about this podcast? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Yeah, I, I like this podcast. Um, I think it was, you know, at first when I, I didn't know what it was like, where it was taking place and I'm hearing like crime lab, I'm like, oh my God, Massachusetts crime lab. Like <laughs> this was like, oh, I was like, oh, it's in New um, Cause we've, we've had our own regional issues um, in New England. But what was interesting about this was that it was su- such a historical look at like what was going on in the late seventies, early eighties with regard to physical evidence, DNA evidence and then, you know, also looking at how whistleblowers were treated then and, um, you know, people that came forward to raise concerns at the time. But I just I thought it it was really interesting because there was a lot in the news about this case. If you look up, uh, you know, Mary Jane in the beginning, you're going to see a lot of great stories online about, oh, she was the savior. And I think it's really interesting to sort of take a deeper dive into this case, who she was what she was doing and the other side of the story, which maybe isn't quite as favorable. So I thought it was really interesting. If anything, I think it was maybe a little bit bloated. It didn't have to be as many episodes as it was, but overall I just thought it was a really interesting story and a good window into the um, criminal justice world. Toby Ball, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for admissible shreds of evidence. Yeah, I like this as well. Um, I think it's got a lot of stuff going for it and you've got some great interviews You've got some very strongly drawn characters. Um, you've got a conflict uh, where, where it's really sort of an either or uh, type of thing. There's a lot of like stories and anecdotes and weird little things that come into play, which I thought were interesting, including was it like the Cincinnati Society for Tall People or something? Yeah. Comes oh, my at one God. Point. It was, that was an actual thing, I right? I wrote a whole podcast about just that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which they said in the show, and I was like, fuck yes. I want a whole podcast about the Cincinnati Society for Tall People. So I think, that, I mean, there's a bunch of things like that, that um, I, I don't know. I just thought there was a good variety. Uh, I agree with Laura a little bit that uh, there, there's... I think it it gets a little bloated at times. There's a thing about, you know, sort of an academic look at whistleblowers, uh, which didn't seem like super necessary to me. But I do think that they were probably on an episode mandate. And I know that that can be tough to kind of make that seem, make it all seem sort of vital. But other than that, I mean, I, I, I was, I loved listening to it. I thought the storytelling was really strong. Uh, there's a lot of big issues that come up. And again, you've got, you, you sort of get a sense of a, you know, a handful of strong personalities and the conflicts that they had and, and the damage that was done. Thumbs up. Kevin Flynn. Yeah, I'm also a thumbs up. I thought this was a really thoughtful podcast. There was a lot of care that was put into it. The news gathering had gone on for years. And so now they felt like this was time to do it. I, I'm, in, I'm intrigued by the idea that they start thinking about this podcast, that they're going to tell a story of a hero 
and they find somebody that could be a villain, or at the very least, deeply flawed. And the the whole idea that everybody that is you know holding up the genius thing that she did that made her a saint is actually also evidence of all the bad stuff that she had done, and. The fact that nobody wants to touch that and the consequences of that are so far reaching that nobody wants to do the thing to correct the error. And so, you know, big time thumbs up for Tessa and her whole crew. I think that this was uh, this was great. And I hope to hear more from this crew. Okay, so I'm giving this a thumbs up, too, but I have some complaints. That I, I did not want to talk about in the discussion, but I'm going to talk about this because I just want to like measure my thumbs up a little bit. It's I'm giving this a thumbs up, but it's not a perfect thumbs up. I felt like some of the episodes I listened to in this podcast were draft mixes of episodes. And I don't understand why. I heard that the reporting of this started in 2018 and now it's 2023. Some of the mixes of this episodes literally had tape going into clips where the narrator's tape was like going into the clip and it was sort of overlapped. So is this an audio production issue? It was an audio production issue. But also there were a couple of editing things, especially like in the later episodes where, for example, I'm not going to spoil it. There was um, a thing where somebody leaves somebody's house talks about a scene after I leave their house and then goes back to a scene where we're at their house. And I'm like, why didn't that scene at their house happen before they left their house and they were at their job that happened at their house? It just seemed like there were some things that were very put together in a rushed fashion, editing fashion. And I felt like I was, I, I literally felt like I was listening to like the, sometimes we get Kevin on this show, cut episodes to review and we're told, hey, these are like last pass cuts and just please forgive that they're for review and we're they're going to get a last pass before they go out to the feed and just forgive the imperfections you're going to hear like i heard cuts in tape i heard lack of room tone i heard obvious cuts and i i just felt like given the people working on this given how much time it took give i just felt like this should have legitimately sounded better which I know is like a dickish thing to say, considering how good the content of this was. That was distracting to me. That being said, the story was good. The content was important. The one other thing I will say is it took too long to get to the wrongful convictions part. We spent too much time with mistakes, like bad process, It took, what, episode five, episode six to be like, but were there wrongful convictions? I was thinking about that in episode one. And the fact that the reporters felt credulous when I knew they knew that at the beginning was very frustrating to me. So, yes, it's a thumbs up for the podcast. It's a very good podcast. But as somebody who has listened to a lot of true crime and and, and, and like criminal justice stuff, which a lot of people who have listened to this also are, those things were frustrating to me. That being said. Thumbs up for this podcast. All right. Now it's time for my favorite part of this podcast. A little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the week. The week. Just in time for Easter, a Christian online store began selling artistic coffee mugs that said, quote, Lamb of God. What they weren't aware of was the design was from an album cover for the heavy metal band Lamb of God. The retailer who offers religious-themed clothing, wall art, and other items seems to have been confused by the rocker's name and their 2004 Ashes of the Wake CD. The Iraq War protest album includes such hot tracks as Bloodletting, Another Nail for Your Coffin, and Now You've Got Something to Die For. It's not clear why they thought the picture of bird skeletons diving into a bloodstained battlefield captured the Easter spirit. In the church, Jesus is called the Lamb of God, whose sacrifice washed away our sins. But copyright infringement is also a sin. Lamb of God guitarist Mark Morton says, quote, I ain't mad at Jesus, but y'all can't just be out here bootlegging my shit. Panel. You can understand how someone might be confused by the name of this band. 
Who else might mistake a musical act based on their name? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Who else might mistake a musical act based on their name? Um, Well, I had to turn to the interwebs because I wasn't feeling creative and I found a good one. The New Pornographers. (laughs) Um, This is a Canadian, eight-person Canadian band, and they are not pornographers. They derived the name from Jimmy Swaggart, and sticking with our religious theme, you know, Jimmy Swaggart, the televangelist cousin of Jerry Lee Lewis, and he called rock and roll the, quote, new pornography. And so the band came up with the name after watching, and that, and unfortunately, that had nothing to do with Jimmy Swaggart. They actually named their band after the 1966 Japanese film, The pornographers all right thank you wikipedia brown thank you the new pornographers i can't wait to listen to their music all right toby ball who else might mistake a musical act based on their name Uh, i'm concerned about carol baskin running into def leppard (laughs) no can't yell at him what do you think kevin flynn who else might mistake a musical act based on their name yeah, apparently the Air Force wanted to buy some of those B-52s and... Instead they got you 2 Instead they got you 2 yes. All right. That's going to do it for us, Laura Bricker. If folks want to reach out to you and say, hey, the new pornographers, I'm a favorite fan of that band. How can they find you on social media to, like, make you familiar with their music? Uh, they can find me at Laura Bricker. And tell you about folks who reach out to you on social media. How can they find you there? Well, I actually, I think my daughter listens to the new pornographers. I'm sure she does. Um, yeah, but uh, they can find me at Toby Ball NH. Kevin Flynn, how can people find you on social media? I'm a Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. Follow the show on social media at Crime Writers On, and I encourage you to join our incredible community and our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. Just go to our regular old Facebook page and hit join the group. We'll let you in if you're nice. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners and crime media you get the crime writers on after show married with podcast laura bricker's leave it to bricker podcast and toby ball's deep dive book club podcast our theme song was composed and performed by ty gibbons our line editor is the wonderful livy burdett the executive producer of this fine program is kevin flynn this show was recorded in the treehouse yoga studio above the mockingbird cafe in bay st louis mississippi studio otherwise known as studio c the closet in our new hampshire basement where we leave all of our toenail clippings just in case just in case on behalf of all the crime writers thanks so much for listening we will catch you later later what do you think kevin flynn who else might mistake a musical act based on their name i will say that if Elvis Costello and the imposters come to your town, don't be surprised if it's not them. It was the thinker. All right, let me take it again. That one I'm sucked. literally putting <laughs> cricket sound sucked. effects in. All right. I'm too Literally I'm putting too... cricket sound effects in. All right, let me take it again. All right. I got it. You got it. I was it. laughing okay. on the inside. Right, let me come, come up with a different right here. Um,